If you will, please stand with me as we read God's exhaled word to Grand Bible Church this morning. Second, we'll be in 2 Timothy 1 and 2 Timothy 4. I want to encourage you to leave your Bibles open. We'll be flipping back and forth really throughout the whole book, but we're going to read 2 Timothy 4, verses 1 through 8. The Apostle Paul, facing Nero's sword, says this. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead. And by His appearing and His kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Henceforth, There is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved His appearing. You may be seated. I want you to imagine someone finally getting all that they have always wanted. Something their hearts had been set on for years and years, and they finally get it. What do you think their response in that moment would be? Do you think they'd be quiet? Do you think they might be calm? Do you think they would be unmoved, or would they be something completely different? Gospel promises lead to gospel pleading. The message of the first chapter plus the last chapter of 2 Timothy is this. Gospel promises lead to gospel pleading. It means if the gospel is that thing, and all that it promises is that thing, that once you get it, you will live a certain way then that means that if, if gospel promises are what you cherish, then you will not live like this world is your home. You will not live like these promises are secrets that you don't want to tell other people for fear that someone else might steal your promise. Instead, if gospel promises, the promises of Jesus in the gospel are what your heart cherishes. The way that you will live is you will set aside any kind of safety 
that you would try to find in this world. And in, in setting that aside, what you would then pursue is a life of endangering this life in order to spread those promises far and wide and plead with others that they might honor your king and have the same promises themselves. Paul, in this last letter, teaches us that the promises of the gospel are so precious, the only appropriate response to believing them is to plead with others. We'll see this in two parts. At the very beginning and the very end, we'll see Paul's confidence in the gospel. And then right after the beginning and right before the end, we'll see his charge. The promises will lead to pleading. His confidence leads to charges. Point number one, Paul's confidence in the gospel. Paul's, I mean, did you hear all the, all the commands that we just read in, in chapter four? He just keeps making these commands. He's, he's a man that's filled with passion and pleading. He's so desperate to see as a pastor, other pastors obey the gospel. And so he started by contrasting the difference between certain kinds of teachers who are in Christ's church that will lead you away from Christ. And then he pled with, or he pleaded with Timothy. The gospel has to go on and Christ will strengthen you for this purpose. I need to see it continue. And I want, to see, I want us to see this morning that all of that pastoral pleading has been following gospel promises. It's the promises of the gospel that have led Paul to plead with Timothy and with us. I want to see three gospel promises that are burdens of Paul's heart in the beginning and in the end of this letter. First of all, he begins the letter with a promise. It's the promise of life. We know this is a burden of Paul that promises will lead to gospel pleading because he opens his mouth through his pen by starting with the promise of life. We saw at the first sermon, look in chapter 2, just remind yourselves that the devil, chapter 2, verse 26, the devil has apostles. The devil has apostles in Christian churches. The devil has sent men into Christian churches. Look at chapter 2, verse 26. He captures them to do his will in Christ's church. And then look in chapter 3, verses 6 and 7 at what the apostles of the devil do. He captures them to capture others and to teach others. Always learning a certain kind of truth in Christian churches that will never lead to the knowledge of salvation. A certain kind of teaching of the apostles of the devil that only leads to more and more ungodliness. And we just heard in 1 Timothy that godliness holds promise for this life and the life to come. There is a godliness that the gospel then works into us that promises us of life. And there are people in the churches of Jesus who teach lies that will make us ungodly, which means they'll lead us to death. Paul the very first verse, chapter 1, verse 1, 
says what is, is his burden. It is the promise of life. See that? Paul is writing as an apostle who's not been sent by the devil, but by God to spread the promise of life. And that drives everything that he then says. You see how he's an apostle of God in chapter 1, verse 1, but then also in chapter 1, verse 11. You see that? For this gospel, verse 10, I was made a preacher, an apostle, a teacher. What is that gospel that God sent you to preach? Verses 9 and 10. That God has saved us and called us to a holy calling. Not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace. When did he give us this grace? When did he set this purpose upon Christians to save us? Not by the things that we have done. When did he set that grace upon us? He gave it to us in Christ Jesus before Genesis 1. This is the gospel that Paul is preaching. This gospel that was promised to us before Genesis 1 has been manifested You could say in Matthew 1, when the Savior Christ Jesus came to us, the one who, through whom God would save us, not according to our works, but by His grace appeared, Christ Jesus. What is salvation? It is abolishing death and bringing life and immortality. A life not just in this world, but a a life that will last forever. A a gospel that pierces a world of death. A gospel of life. Christ promises life. And so Paul preaches that promise. If you believe in the gospel, you will live. That is the first call to everyone here. This world will only lead you to death. And you can go to churches where that will lead you to death. Because... The devil has apostles in the churches of Christ, in the great house of God. But the good news of Christ is that you can live forever with him if you turn from your sins and trust him. And that is a promise that he will never turn back from. There's a second promise that is a burden on the heart of the Apostle Paul that leads to these charges throughout 2 Timothy. And it's at the end of the letter. We just read some of it in chapter 4. Look in verses 6 through 8. I want you to see the language of promise that is a burden for Paul that leads to these pleadings with Timothy. Verse 8. There is, this is the word of promise, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness. The Lord will award it to me, and not only to me, but he will award the crown of righteousness to all who love his appearing. There's a promise of a crown, not just the promise of life, but a certain kind of life with the king and a certain kind of life where the, the king shares his rule. When God raised Jesus from the dead, he was taking one crown off of his head and putting another crown on his head. This world was confronted with the Lord Jesus and all the world esteemed that man as being worthy of what kind of crown? It was a crown of thorns, a crown of curse to be worn right before they killed him. 
And God accepted His sacrifice as a curse on the cross and then gave Him a different crown, the crown of David. God said, you are the king who will live forever over and rule over all the world. Beloved, he is the only one worthy of that crown. He is the only one worthy of God. Evaluating everything. And not a crooked judge, but a holy judge who sees everything. Our immortal God, who has not missed any sin, looks at His Son, and even through His excruciating death, to the very end He says, you never sinned, you alone get the crown. The promise of the Gospel is He shares His crown. That He takes all our bad to share all His good. Even the crown of righteousness to everyone who loves His appearing. Do you love that God appeared to be judged for you? There's something else you have to love in this repeated word, appearing. Verse 1 of chapter 4 talks about a different appearing. Do you love His appearing? Do you also love that he, wasn't just, he didn't just appear to be judged for you, but He will appear again to judge the world, to destroy this present world, to judge forever all who reject Him, and to give to all who love Him a crown. Second Timothy has told us that the promises that we cherish are proven in our loves you'll be able to see what promises you're actually cherishing by what you love. We either love the appearing of this Christ, or if you look at chapter 4, verse 10, there's another kind of love, a loving of this present world. If you love this present world, this world that loves sin, this world that put a crown of thorns on the king, this world that crowns with praise and honor those who love themselves, this world that does not love God. If you love that world, then you do not love the appearing of the one who's going to destroy this world. Listen, I'm not saying that Christians hate everything in this world. Christ is king over this world. He's redeeming things in this world. But our hearts are not satisfied here. Your heart must not be satisfied here. Because we are waiting for a promise to be with our King. Not just to live in a world where He is remotely ruling, but to be face to face. To be apart from our King, we have to be dissatisfied. Do you long for Jesus to come and appear because the promises that you cherish are in His hands and not in this world? The gospel for Paul leads him to plead because it holds the promise of life, it holds the promise of a crown, but third, it holds the promise of safety. This is in the end of our book. Look in chapter 4, verse 16. Paul is saying, Beware, Timothy, as you tried to come to me, that Alexander the coppersmith, he did great harm to me, verse 14. The Lord is going to repay him when he appears. 
Beware of him. He strongly opposed our message. Verse 16. At my first defense, perhaps the defense that he had because Alexander the coppersmith maybe turned him into the authorities. At my first defense, no one came to stand by me. All deserted me. Verse 17. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. So, in that way, I was rescued from the lion's mouth. Listen to the word of promise. The promise of safety. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into His heavenly kingdom. To Him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. How do you define rescue? How do you define safety? Paul defines rescue. Paul defines rescue in verse 18, and he defines safety in verse 18. And in so doing, he proves that his promises, the promises that are precious to him, are not in this world. Believing the gospel means that our definition of safety is not being safe from disease. It is not being safe from danger, any kind of danger in this earthly life. That's not our safety. Paul is clinging to the promise that Jesus, look, will rescue. Verse 18 Jesus will rescue me when he delivers me safely into his kingdom. That's when I will be safe. You understand what that means? You've got to understand what this means because it'll affect your deathbed. Paul does not see death as danger. Look at this. This is amazing. Paul defines death as delivery. Let this soak in. Nero is not going to be the only one fulfilling a purpose when he cuts Paul's head off soon. When Paul... This is a promise for you if you're in Christ. When Paul is the least safe in the hands of the mightiest man in the world, that is the same moment when Paul is safest. Caesar's sword is Christ's chariot. When I was studying this, I was remembering a time where my mom played a tag with me and my brother, and I think my cousins as well. And she pulled out this trick whenever whoever was, you know, it was pursuing her and actually catching her. She would pull out this trick that I guess she used when she was younger. Maybe some of you have heard this phrase before. She would say, King's X. Cross her fingers. I guess they used to do it like this, but then we cross our fingers this way. And she would say, King's X, King's X. And we initially asked her, who cares, you're it. Um, we initially, she said, no, you don't understand King's X. That means I'm safe. 
I'm safe from you tagging me. It, it, and it's so frustrating then to play with anyone like that, right? <laughs> right? When you're, you know, my, my cousins were fast, and I'm not very fast, so I have to, have to find someone who's not very fast. And, I, and, and maybe I got that from my family. And so when I would catch my mom and she would say, King's X, she was never it. Now I've looked into the kind of history of that, that image. And um, so before my mom's day, uh, King's X meant something. Uh, a messenger would be sent by a king and they would have a document and it would have the king's mark on it, the king's X, the king's mark on it. And anyone in authority who could endanger that person who found that, would, he would say, here's the king's X. They would open that document, and when they saw the king's mark on that document, that mark was securing their safe passage. Now, you compare the, the, the kind of foundations of that image with how we cross our fingers now. How we cross our fingers now is just when we're expressing some sort of hope. I mean a worldly kind of hope, a flimsy kind of wish. We cross our fingers and just hope that something will happen. Beloved, There is a promise that we have in the gospel. Christ will not rescue you from pain. He will not rescue you from prison cells. He will not rescue you from swords. He will rescue you, if you are in him, from every evil deed. from the penalty of all those evil deeds, from the consequences of all those evil deeds. And He will rescue you if you are in Him at death. I want you to see what death is. It is the King's cross. We're so afraid of death. This is what what the devil does. He enslaves the whole world through fear of death. Not Christians. Our death is our King's ex. When the devil catches us, when his pursuit is finally over and he's going to do what he is always meant to do to us, to kill us, that is the moment the king claims us. That is the moment that he secures our safe passage. Our Redeemer rescues us when the world's worst falls upon us. At that moment, your chariot probably won't be a sword. It may be cancer. It may be a car that kills you. It may be an aneurysm, some random fluke for a child. It may be old age. For all who are in Christ, there is a promise. Death is not just safe for us. It is our safest safety. So if you cross your fingers, only do it. And when you cross your fingers, don't make it a wish. Let it be your mockery of the devil with the promise of the king that he is going to give you safe passage and he cannot deny himself. So through your death, he will secure you. Death will deliver the promises that we are waiting for. Death is when we get our our full life and death is when we get our crown. And those gospel promises lead Paul to gospel pleading. The second charge he gives or the second part of 
the sermon is his charge to gospel ministers. His charge to gospel ministers. On your way back to chapter 1, stop in chapter 2, verse 10. Paul is reflecting on the promise that the word is not bound in chapter 9. And then he says, therefore, because the word is not bound, I will endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Those who only pretend, those who only pretend to love the gospel are apathetic about the salvation of others. This is a rebuke of my own heart too often. Hear this. If you don't, if your life doesn't show a concern to endure anything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. If you, if the things you do don't actually prove that that is your burden. If you're apathetic toward the salvation of others, you're only pretending to love the gospel. Paul is not pretending. And that's why he gives this charge in the beginning of his letter after thinking about the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus because his promise is so great. He says in chapter 1, verse 6, Timothy, fan into flame the gift of God. This is his charge. I am writing you to remind you to fan into flame the gift of God. That gift is gospel teaching. That's clear in the the passage. It's also clear whenever he says that gift got into you through the laying on of my hands. And DJ read to us earlier from 1 Timothy chapter 4. Don't neglect the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of the hands of the church, the elders. It's the same gift. He says, give yourself to public reading of Scripture, to teaching of Scripture, to exhortation. Teach this message and persist in it, for by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. The gift that he wants to fan into flame is gospel teaching. Notice in, at the end of his life, in 2 Timothy chapter 1, he's not saying do not neglect your gift. He's given a little bit more color to this phrase, fan it into Flame. He says, you're going to need fuel. Timothy, you're going to need fuel if you, verse 8, are not going to be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner. You are going to need fuel if you are, verse 12, going to suffer and yet suffer in a way as not to be ashamed, but to be totally confident that Christ will guard the gospel even if you die for the gospel. You're going to need fuel if you are going to guard that message, verse 13 and verse 14, from the false teachers in the church of Ephesus. You're going to need fuel if you're going to then entrust that message that Christ has given to you to other faithful men who will be able to teach others also. You need fuel. But we need to pay attention to the image. He doesn't say... Fan and deflame your message. He's not saying you need to preach hot messages. He doesn't say you need to fan yourself into flame. 
He's not saying that preachers behind a pulpit always need to be passionate. Though that may be true. That's not what he's saying. Fan your gift to teach the gospel into flame. It is your gift that must not grow cold. It is your gift that must not burn out because your gift to teach the gospel is the gift that keeps on giving. It is the gift that all the gifts of Christ are hidden in. So you need to fan that gift into flame or no one's getting the gifts. No one's going to get what Christ would give them. 2 Timothy is written to the church of Ephesus. Paul has talked this way before, not just in 1 Timothy, but also in Ephesians, where he said, Christ gives teachers to the church to give to the church his promises. The only way you get the promises of Christ is if you have gifted teachers to give you. It's the gift that keeps on giving. You have to have the gospel to have its promises. The promise of life, the promise of a crown, the promise of safety are gifts that are only open to those who will not listen to the false teachers in churches, but who will listen to people who have Timothy's gifts. So fan it into flame because the promise of life is so great. And because he says right before he says fan it into flame, he says, you sincerely believe it. You are the real deal. You're not the chorus. You're not Phygelus or Hermogenes. You're not Philetus or Harmonious, what is the other? Hymenaeus. You're not them, you're the real deal. And because there's real promise in the gospel, you've got to fan and deflame your gift. And that same charge and burden is on his heart at the end. Go to chapter 4. At the end of this book, in chapter 4, verse 2, dying Paul charges Timothy to preach the gospel. Verse 2 says, preach the word. Well, why are you saying preach the gospel? Listen to me. If you preach the Bible, the message of Jesus Christ better be in every single one of those messages. Let me prove it to you. Don't just listen to me. This is not just my philosophy. Chapter 3, verse 15, just a few words earlier. The word of God is called there the sacred writings. You see that? 315. Sacred writings, what are the sacred writings? Moses, the prophets, the Psalms. Now all the Gospels and letters, these sacred writings, what do they do? They make you wise for salvation by faith in Christ Jesus. Preach the Word means preach the Gospel of Jesus. And there are promises when he says preach the gospel. There are promises that Paul is thinking about that leads to this plea. Preach the gospel. There's a promise in chapter 4 verse 1. Look there. Preach, Timothy, when you feel like it, when you don't feel like it, because your king is coming. And he's coming to judge everyone, everyone. Your judgment and their judgment are at stake in your preaching. Persist in this, for by so doing, you will save both yourself and your Pay close attention to the doctrine that you preach. Look at the promise that Paul has in mind in chapter 4, verses 3 through 4. Why does he plead with Timothy, preach the gospel? The reason you should preach is because they won't listen to you. They will not listen to you. Timothy, 
So preach. Well, Paul, he's not into many of the popular church growth strategies. We're a group of men that get in a room and say, what will gather the flock? What will gather a hearing? What will gather a crowd? Paul, I think, in the Lord Jesus would say, if you want to gather a crowd, you need to tamper with my word. You won't preach my word. Because unbelievers don't want that word. It says in verses 3 and 4, they want lies. They want, but they want a certain kind of lies. They want lies in churches. They want to sit in pews when they hear their lies. They want lies that are masquerading as truth. Notice, Why? They want to feel good about their sin. Hire a preacher who will give us myths. Because I love my passions, my sinful passions. No, Timothy, you preach the word because people will leave your church when you do it. And they'll go find a church that doesn't preach the word. Verse 2, Paul defines what preaching is. Have you noticed these, these words? He defines preaching as reproving, rebuking, and exhorting. Now, look back in chapter 3, verse 16 again. What, if you preach the word, what does the word do in verse, chapter 3, verse 16? It rebukes. If you preach a word that rebukes, then you will be preaching in a way that reproves them and rebukes them and exhorts them. And also, what does this word, breathed out by God, actually accomplish? Chapter 3, verse 16. It will train the people who hear it in righteousness. This is why you want to preach it. Because just a few words later, chapter 4, verse 1, the righteous king is coming. They need to be trained in righteousness because there is a righteous judge who's coming. And verse 8, he has a crown of righteousness. Who is he going to hand it to? Those who love his appearing. How do you love his appearing? Only if you preach his word. That trains them in righteousness. That prepares them for the righteous judge so that they might receive from him not righteous judgment, but the right giving of his crown. Friends, that includes reproving you. Don't turn away from the truth that reproves you. Don't turn away from sermons that tell you to stop doing what you're doing. Don't turn away from sermons that tell you to stop believing. You're believing the wrong way. Stop believing that. Don't turn away from sermons that exhort you to leave your passions, the things you prize that would keep you from Christ. Don't go to churches. Don't listen to preachers who stand behind pulpits and excuse your sin. Never talking about your sin. Flee from sin. The king is coming. Timothy, preach the word because they will leave you. You don't need them. Preach the gospel because the gospel is the only thing that you can preach that actually will get them ready for a righteous judge and you don't hate these people. So reprove them, rebuke them, and exhort them by giving them the word that reproves them, rebukes them, exhorts them, and then makes them ready for the righteous judge. We preach Jesus. We don't preach passions. 
And people who love Jesus will endure all the ways that the word speaks against them. Endure all the ways that the word speaks against them and speaks for Jesus. Do you see how it is Paul's confidence in the gospel that leads to this charge to Timothy? Preach the word, verse 6, for. Here's the reason why, Timothy, I want you to preach the word. What has led me to this charge is my confidence that I have preached the word and that death is about to deliver my promises to me. And, but everyone who loves his appearing will also get this crown. They have to hear. They have to hear. So I charge you. I'm pleading, Timothy, preach so that they will love Jesus and have all that is in him. Gospel promises lead to gospel pleading. If gospel promises are precious to you, church, if gospel promises are precious to you, then you and I will plead with others to believe the same promises. What we've seen in 2 Timothy is that a sign that someone doesn't really believe the gospel, doesn't really believe it is as good as it is, is they have apathy. They don't really care that others hear it and believe it. Easter evangelism should fill our calendars. Because Easter has changed our lives. I'm saying this to myself. Jesus is the Savior of all people. What God is saying is all people are sinners. There is no one that you know who is not a sinner. That means every single person that you know needs to be saved. And there's only one Savior for all people. And that means they have to not only hear it, not only go to church, they need to persist in the gospel that Timothy and Paul preach. Only they will be saved. Everyone needs Jesus. So all need to hear about Jesus because they all need Jesus. Everyone you know. Let me just trace something out. Look back in chapter 2, verse 1. Back in chapter 2, verse 1, Paul says, Timothy, I want you to be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ. And we saw last week that the strength that Christ gives to his servants is a strength and a grace to make sure his gospel goes out. Right? He strengthens us by his grace so that his gospel will go out. Then did you hear this? Look in chapter 4, verse 16. No one is standing by Paul, verse 17, but the Lord who is strengthening him. Why? He's giving Paul grace for what end? So that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. And then at the end, the very last word. Verse 22, grace be with you. Grace, that kind of strengthening grace for the same kind of purpose be with all of you. That you is plural in the church. All of you in the church. Jesus has put unbelievers around you. Some people you know are totally denying the gospel. There are other people who have wandered off into myths. While claiming Christ. 
if gospel promises lead to gospel pleading, but you and I have apathy toward other people being saved or toward our own church members. We're just happy because they come. Coldness to the gospel, being ashamed into silence signals grave danger of being cold to the promises of Christ or maybe cold to the promiser. Christ has saved us to plead with all people. And the way that he fuels our pleading is with his promises. So let me appeal to you. Let every sin that you commit that leaves you feeling guilty. Let every sin that's committed against you that leaves you sad. Let every time that the world fails you and does not fill up your heart with joy, let that remind you that you need life that is not here. You need a king who is coming. And Christ promises to give you all of that in the gospel. You need the gospel, Christian. You need the gospel. You need to persist under the preaching of that gospel. Or you will wander away from Christ. You need to fuel your heart every day with the gospel. And then you need to remember that not only are the promises wonderful, but the promiser is faithful. Our promises are not wishes. These promises are as strong as our Savior. Christ himself is the oxygen. He is the oxygen that fuels a raging fire to make us plead with others. Be saved. Gospel promises lead to gospel pleading. Father in heaven, we pray that this word of the Apostle Paul would take root into our hearts. Not because they are the word of man, but because he's your apostle. And because what he says holds glorious promises of a risen king. And we pray that you would make us faithful to plead with others. Because his promises are so very good. In Jesus name. Amen.